0: Welcome to Audiograph. This is where we document the readings and conversations hosted by the New School Writing Program. My name is Luke Wiggett. I'm happy to bring you the second-to-last episode here, which is a nonfiction forum hosted by faculty member Honor Moore. She also heads up the nonfiction portion of the MFA here at the New School. And she's in conversation with Brando Skyhorse, who reads from his recent memoir, Take This Man. They have a really great conversation. He's an especially dynamic reader, I think, and uh, hopefully you're able to glean something from what they talk about. And yeah, we've got one more episode after this, which is uh, the second part in a two-part series that um, that I did with, here with Audiograph in, con- in conjunction with Dr. Doctor, which is a reading series and podcast that I co-host with alumni Sam Farmond, and we'll be bringing you that next week. It's a uh, kind of a marathon reading that we hosted at the new school in the writing office over the course of a few days back in the winter. And yeah, you're going to get to hear some of the faculty read uh, poems and stories and excerpts from their nonfiction, as well as I think there's going to be a few uh, alumni and current students sort of uh, sprinkled in there as well. And yeah, so you can look forward to that. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope those of you who have been working on your theses are starting to turn those in and feel that sense of relief and also uh, you know what the heck are you going to do next uh, kind of thing, uh, but you'll you'll be fine. Um, yeah, thanks so much for listening.
1: Uh, just thrilled to uh, have Brando Skyhorse here. Uh, one morning, about three weeks ago, I woke up sick for the second morning in a row. Less sick than the day before when I couldn't even stream video much less concentrate on reading a book. Then I remembered that Brando Skyhorse was going to visit us today, and I thought, why not read his memoir Take This Man Today instead of tomorrow or the next day? And so I did, putting it down only once in the eight hours it took to read it to make chicken soup. What a trip I had. Laughing, 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 underlining pasting fluorescent orange Post-its. I was in a state of bliss and pleasure and the hilarity of someone else's amazing, agonizing, thrilling life. I forgot I was sick until I cried at the end and my nose started to run again. But too much for mere grief and identification. I was just weeping. I am always saying to whoever will listen, and some of you who have been in my classes know this, uh, that memoir is the contemporary genre, a most capacious container for those of us who need, really need to tell our stories, not so much so others understand them, but so we ourselves do. Brando has what I can only describe as a maniac of a story. Just listen to its second sentence. My mother, Maria Teresa, a Mexican who wanted to be an American Indian, transformed me into Brando Skyhorse, a full-blooded American brave. In the end, Brando has five fathers, including a biological one who is not an American Indian at all. But I'll let you buy a copy of the book and read and listen to his uh, reading to hear the rest of the story. But it takes more than a great story to create a great memoir, which this is. Memoir requires an understanding of the form, one aspect of which is that when we write these books, it is as if we are living the experience for the first time. With writing, while remembering, comes understanding, comes a realization of what the experience meant and who you really are. In this case, the story is complicated, violent, convoluted, full of love and hate and of that classic American theme, the search for family. It was reading this book that made me realize how American that theme is, as if the broken pieces of this country need to find each other in family more desperately because the country itself does not offer a singular safe identity. Brando is also a novelist whose first book, The Madonnas of Echo Park, won the Penn Hemingway Award and the Sue Kaufman Award for First Fiction from the Academy of Arts and Letters. He lives in New York, usually, but is presently the Jenny McCain Moore writer in Washington, a position actually named for my mother, a writer whose early death provided George Washington University with a small amount of money from the royalties of her own first book, A Memoir. In the boom decades of the 70s and 80s, that small amount of money grew into an endowment which brings a writer to DC each year to teach one course at GW and one course in the community. Out of those workshops have come some amazing writers. The two who come to mind are the novelists Edward P. Jones and Dorothy Allison. I realized that was a tangent, but it explains why I welcome Brando Skyhorse not only as a magical writer, but as a brother, a kind of family member. Brando.
2: Thanks. Thanks, guys. What a wonderful introduction, Honor. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here and thrilled to have taken the Amtrak train from Washington DC to be with you here this evening can you hear me at all or I don't really yeah. need this so you can see I'm kind of a loud mouth now you'll understand that when I start reading from the book where I got that from but uh, so uh, yeah so I, I've um, selected a few choice uh, parcels from the book here if any of you are working a non-fiction or memoir Hopefully it'll make you uh, appreciate your family situation all the more and think, damn, I'm glad I didn't grow up in that house. But, uh, <laughs> or set the bar, you know, at a slightly higher, uh, higher angle. Uh, it, it's, um, the, the thing I constantly teach in the classes at DC, uh, at GW, is the importance of empathy the importance of empathy for oneself and the importance of empathy for every single person that you're writing about. Because I feel especially in memoir and nonfiction, we generally write from a place of hurt, anger, pain, dislocation, etc. So um, empathy, I think, is probably one of the easiest things to, uh, it's one of the easiest lessons I can give you, but it's one of the most difficult things to master as a writer. So I hope that in hearing some of these passages tonight, you get a sense of the empathy that I have, not only for myself, but for uh, my mother. Uh, So I'm gonna read a couple of sections uh, to kind of kick out a couple of short sections. Uh, As uh, Honor said, I I did have five stepfathers and, and I was raised to believe that I was an American Indian by my mother until I was about 12 or 13. And then when I discovered the truth, she encouraged me to keep up the lie because she was living as an American Indian herself too. She was originally born Maria Teresa Benaga, and became Running Deer Skyhorse. Now, all of you answering truthfully, if you could be Maria or Running Deer, which would you be? I know which I would be, which is why I'm Brando, as opposed to something else. So uh, she really was uh, sort of a person who had, um, shall we say, two personas. And so I'm going to read two scenes that kind of give you insight into both of those personas. And then I'll read something else a little later that... uh, Hopefully it won't be too salacious for everybody. And then we can start with some questions. And, uh, you know, I'm really eager to hear what you guys are working on and what questions you might have from a craft standpoint or a publishing standpoint, whatever it is. Uh, so that's the deal. Hopefully a brisk, efficient 80 minutes or so uh, won't take up too much of your time. Not the reading, obviously, but hopefully it won't take up too much of your time. Uh, and thank you again for coming out this evening. I really appreciate it. So this is one part of my mother. Um... This is when she went to high school. Her experience was scary enough to get my grandmother June and my grandfather Emilio to transfer my mother to Hollywood Professional, an all grades private school on Hollywood Boulevard that in 1963 cost $300 a semester. A half hour bus ride from Echo Park The school was for kids who needed classes arranged around a budding musician's or actor's schedule. At Hollywood Professional, my mother, Maria, was free to wear her long-dyed, blood-red hair beehive high. She showed off her dark skin in tight black dresses and spoke what little Spanish my grandmother June had taught her to attract the white boys. She wanted to be new dangerous and sexy, everything she had never been and could never be in Echo Park. Here, my mother would come to understand the power of being exotic, the power of being the other. She refused a small role in Spartacus offered by a casting agent who hung out at the school. She met Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, high on coke and drunk all the time, doing his best to transform his drug-addled palsy into charm, as he played with her hair during study period, called her baby, and said he'd ask his brother Brian to write a song for her. She hung out with James Mason's daughter, Portland, and earned a bevy of female admirers and friends by throwing a young, bratty Charlene Tilton, future Jezebel of TV's primetime soap opera Dallas, down a flight of stairs. She was voted Duchess of the Harvest Ball in 1963 and made rich friends who encouraged her to live with the kind of reckless, self-destructive abandon only money and privilege can afford. Her best friend was a spoiled Bel Air Jewish princess named Betty they drank, drugged, and partied together until the early 1970s when Betty married an Asian man, moved to Florida, had a child, and in a fit of depression and rage, bashed her baby girl's head in with a hammer and was sent to death row. After Hollywood Professional, my mother had fallen in love with a sandy haired blonde named Mike and given birth to two children before me, both of whom had befallen their own separate, inconceivable tragedies. A son named Shane, who in his black and white photograph looked like a porcelain doll with onyx marbles for eyes, had a congenital heart defect, a hole in his heart, which my mother instinctively knew was there, but that an unsympathetic hospital staff ignored, claimed his life at three. My mother's snow white, blue eyed, blonde daughter, Janine Deborah Patterson, had been kidnapped also at three, by a jealous babysitter, and disappeared. The police scoffed at my mother's claims to the Caucasian baby, letting crucial time lapse after Janine's abduction. In a grainy color photograph taken in our house's backyard in the 1970s, my mother holds Janine, dressed in a pink jumper, high in her arms, the one piece of evidence that my mother had given birth to a beautiful girl that nobody believed was hers. What else didn't people believe? I mean, how much of this was true? Spartacus had been in theaters for three years when my mother transferred to Hollywood Professional. Dennis Wilson never went there, though his younger, shyer brother Carl Wilson did to escape ravenous fans at Hawthorne High. Portland Mason and Charlene Tilton, who went to Hollywood High School several years later, aren't noted among Hollywood Professionals' illustrious alumni. There were no women on Florida's death row. At the time my mother claimed that Betty was there, Shane and Janine both exist in photographs. Shane's in my memory, Janine's in my possession. While I maybe saw a trace of my mother in Shane's face, I realize now there's no possible way a woman with my mother's features and skin color gave birth to a blonde, blue eyed, fair skinned girl. Years later, I noticed a tiny timestamp on the trim of Janine's photo that says August 1977, which meant that Janine would have been my younger and not older <laughs> fake sister. Yet for years, these children were resurrected whenever I misbehaved, a make-believe sister and brother to go with my make-believe father and ethnicity who met horrible make-believe ends. My mother had so much pain to share, she had to invent people to hurt. Yet in every lie she told, she always made sure to give something back to you. It could be a Weight Watchers meeting where she claimed a ribbon for losing 50 pounds after submitting a falsified weight loss card. (laughs) Then she'd hit another meeting at another Weight Watchers branch later in the week, claiming the same weight loss ribbon twice. She lost all that weight in six weeks, someone whispered. She looks great. (laughs) If I can do it, she told a wrapped group of hopeful women, you can do it too. (laughs) It could be the Overeaters Anonymous group where she ran into John DeLorean, the disgraced auto executive who had beaten government drug trafficking charges, and was at OA because he'd, quote, started eating lots of junk food during his trial and needed to find a self-empowering Christian way to lose weight. He told his fellow OAers not to lose faith and gave my mother his business card. Come work for me, he said. My mother never found his card, no matter how often I asked. It could be leading a group of wide-eyed pilgrims, my mother's term for white people, around a jewelry store, rubbing southwestern squash blossom necklaces and sterling silver bracelets between her fingers. Using a just-for-whites Indian voice, a taffy pull on her slight Latina accent, she'd pronounce whether a piece of turquoise had been crafted by a real, quote, on the res skin. Of course, my mother had no idea which pieces were authentic, but if her details didn't line up or connect at all, you still wanted to believe her. Why? You felt privileged that someone with such an extraordinary story would choose to confide in, of all people, you. You'd forget meeting a hundred people, but you'd remember meeting my mother. Her story became your story. I can't wait to tell my friends I met an Indian. One of my mother's pilgrims told her in a sincere embrace. She rattled with the jewelry my mother had helped her buy. Thank you. Hey, she'd say, at least it's never boring. (laughs) So that's one side of my mom. (laughs) Only one? (laughs) And uh, here's the other side. Uh, This was when my mother took me out to meet my namesake, a man named Paul Skyhorse, who I believe was my biological father. I was five years old, and she was dating a man at the time named Frank, uh, who would subsequently become another one of my stepfathers. He never married my mom, but he's sort of like been grandfathered into being my honorary father status since we've known each other and survived my mom like all these years. So we're kind of glommed together by sort of uh, by experience. so this is the day I met who I thought was my father. The morning we drove to Vienna was cloudless, the way all mornings on eventful days are in memory. That name, Vienna, had an exotic magical lilt to it, something that made me think we were visiting some kind of castle. By the way, Vienna is a minimum security prison <laughs> in, uh, the mid- in the Midwest. Uh, in the back of a pickup truck, I was spread out on top of... Uh, a vicious FBI hunting dog named Bachi who patiently cushioned the rocky ride to the prison. My father, Paul, was brought into a large fluorescent lit waiting area with long metallic benches and tables. He jangled like loose change, wearing wrists and ankle cuffs, and his hair, which drooped to his waist, reached the top of my head when we stood side by side. Vienna was a level six minimum security prison, which means we were allowed one greeting hug and kiss. There was no divider between Paul and us. My little big chief, he said, and picked me up off the ground. I felt I was soaring at the top of a flagpole. His voice was a low rumble from the mountaintop of his head. I could see him in our now tiny-seeming Echo Park house bending down like an ancient oak while he rustled between rooms and with his massive arm span wrapping our entire family in a protective turtle shell embrace. I had found my father, my mom's boyfriend Frank Waving us off in Union Station less than a week ago wasn't even a memory when we packed for our trip home. I couldn't think about anything except Paul. When would I see him again? How long before he got out of jail? Would he come home to Los Angeles to live with us? On this trip, my mother had already gotten in the habit of giving me responsibility for safekeeping important documents, checks, and tickets, which became routine as I got older. You're already five years old, she said. You're not a child anymore. (laughs) Kellogg's Frosted Flakes had a special promotion that allowed kids to travel free on Amtrak if they had a pair of box tops from specially marked boxes of the cereal. My mother thought she'd given me the box tops for safekeeping. She hadn't. What do you mean you can't find them, she screamed. Calming her down was impossible. Nakomi, the man we were staying with, and I were trying to deaccelerate a moving train. I was filled with a drowning panic, triple-checking under cushions and in my pockets for what I knew wasn't there. I had jeopardized our trip, and now neither of us could go home, ever. We can't leave now. I don't have any money to buy your ticket. Once we were back home, I'd see my mother pull from between her breasts an egg-shaped clump of blood-stained $20 bills Paul had slipped her during our visit." I'll just leave you here, she shouted. You've taken enough of my life from me. My mother grabbed my throat. Then she pulled me across the trailer we were staying in, the way a girl would drag a lifeless doll up a flight of stairs. She threw me shivering onto the bathroom floor and then snatched one of Comey's leather knife holsters and stabbed at my neck with it. It was empty. The holster tip didn't cut, simply folding inward. She tossed it aside and yanked me over to the toilet like a mop. My mother wrapped her hands around my neck again and pushed my face into the toilet water while I flailed my short arms trying to reach the flush handle. My resistance frustrated my mother. Her grip tightened and her nails pierced my skin. I was drowning and choking, and it would be seconds before I lost consciousness. Nakomi wedged himself in the bathroom doorway, grabbed my mother's shoulders, and uncorked her off me. My head slapped in a wet puddle on the ground. There's a synchronous sound of shallow breathing from us all, our chest rising and falling at different rates, our breathing a relay game. When the box tops were found, an apology was grumbled, but my mother explained to me that being strangled had been a natural consequence of my carelessness. Not being given the box tops wasn't an excuse. I should have asked for them. Later, as I got older, whenever my mother got unwelcome mail from the welfare office or the IRS, when I couldn't unjam a tape from her VCR or fix her wonky phone line, when I was the closest male at hand on whom to take out her frustrations with men, or above all, whenever she was afraid, she'd bellow for me from her bedroom. Brando. It was a chainsaw howl, a concussion blast, that to this day makes me jump at loud noises. When she called my name, I stopped being her son and turned into a hunchback lab assistant scurrying through our horror B-movie castle, searching for the one essential ingredient she needed to complete her experiment. Of course, I'd always lacked this one crucial piece of her puzzle. It was, like those box tops, Something she'd already forgotten she'd never given to me. So we spent a lot of time looking for stepfathers. Uh, And so this is kind of a summary of a brief roundup of what that was like. My mother was bored She'd been single for almost a year after Frank left her, so we hit the road with prepaid Amtrak Greyhound and airline tickets, looking for dads for me and men for her, but not really in that order. When you're a child, you go where you're pulled and trust whoever's doing the pulling. What started as a couple of trips to visit Paul was now a full-scale cross-country manhunt. We'll always stay safe as long as we're together, she said, Nobody's fucked up enough to hurt a mother and her child. (laughs) My mother dated three-dimensionally, keeping track of the men she met through her evolving singles ads like a chess master in the park playing five games at once. She chose prospective suitors based on what parts of the country she wanted to visit. New men met new adventures on buses, trains, and planes with phonics workbooks and early readers to cover my short vacations from school. Staring out the large airport windows, my mother, always a nervous flyer, would watch a plane take off and whisper, come on, big bird, you're going to make it. Our visits were measured in days or hours, accommodated sometimes but not always with our own beds and garnished with healthy dollops of charity and good luck. We traveled to Oakland where Larry, a kind wheelchair-bound Vietnam veteran, introduced me to Pong. There was an Amtrap trick on the coast starlight to Klamath Falls, Oregon. Carl, a man in his early 60s, loaded us into his pickup truck and drove to a literal shack with a tin roof and newspaper insulation where he and his three children slept in one common bed. In Oxnard, California, we stayed with Stan, an obese man whose bratty tween daughters hissed at me through their retainers and kept their sunglasses on indoors. A man in Albuquerque, New Mexico, tried to teach me the harmonica. A scary redneck named Rick, who lived in a San Antonio trailer park, served me milk in glasses with topless Playboy models on them. (laughs) I named a stuffed rabbit bought at a Greyhound bus station Redding. In honor of the California town, we fled at four in the morning. By my 10th birthday, my stuffed animal collection, one toy per man, had grown into a Versailles menagerie of felt ears, cotton bellies, and button eyes. A disabled man in Atlanta... Never got us home from the airport. My mother spotted him from the jetway and, thanks to her habit of never sending photographs of herself, walked right by him, made a U-turn, and headed to a ticket gate, saying that we needed to return to Los Angeles because she'd forgotten my insulin. (laughs)
0: Looks...
2: (laughs) Look sick, my mother said. I frowned and sucked in my cheeks. We had our pick of seats on a boomerang flight back to Los Angeles, during which a crew of concerned flight attendants checked up on us throughout, complimenting my mother on how calm and strong I seemed. (laughs) Whenever a prospective man didn't work out, I nurtured a small flickering hope that my mother would abandon her cause and choose to remain single, that she would remain mine alone, but that we could continue our fantastic journeys together. I loved them. I had elaborate fantasies of a life spent with my mother rail-tripping to far-flung American destinations. In my dreams, instead of searching for men, we were stars of our own television show, a mother and son detective duo, out for adventure, new people to meet and new stories to collect. Each manhunt included a cast of warm ancillary characters, relatives, shopkeepers, waiters and waitresses, bus and cab drivers, Amtrak dining car companions, all of them with intoxicating accents and strange-sounding American hometowns and festive backstories so unique and memorable in our moments together. Then, after a flurry of information exchanged on loose napkins and floating sheets of scrap paper, they were lost and forgotten, like names scrubbed clean from a headstone." Impermanence was both my mother's ally, don't make friends with anyone, she said, and my own fiercest foe. For me, if any man was nice for more than a day, he was a potential father. If a woman smiled and rubbed my head, she could be my mother's new best friend. I couldn't help it. Sometimes neither could my mother. Her compassion and tenderness towards total strangers were a constant surprise. Something about the road, being away from the claustrophobic house, and a codependent June revealed her deeper generosity and stripped away her characteristic fear and disappointment. I'd love to tell you all of these strangers' names and stories here, Mm -hmm. how each one of them was crucial in helping us make a connecting flight, or just about to depart train, or covering a meal in a diner where we were short of cash, or buying me a chocolate bar for the road, but they're all a jumble of receding faces and closing doors to me now. Whoever you were and wherever you all are, I thank you. The children were, for me, harder to forget. We met men who had been set adrift by their younger wives and who were simply too old to keep up with their kids. I saw the loneliness in these children's eyes and imagined them kindred brothers and sisters, siblings that could come home with me and replace my stuffed animal forest. We'd hide away together from my mother when she was angry and laugh, play, and clutch one another tight in my closet when her thunderous footsteps got too close. These kids, forced to be adults before they were ready, weren't authority figures. They were just like me, searching in their own fathers for the same thing I had traveled halfway across the country to find. Little kids also ask brave questions. Why was my hair long like a girl's? Did I live in a teepee? How come I didn't wear feathers? My mother ignored these questions or sometimes invented her own answers, but she always left town with the same encouraging words. We'll be back. Sometimes the men followed up with notes from their kids who told us in large capital letters that floated like balloons across three-hole punch paper how much they missed us, asking when they'd see us again. My mother never answered them. She was writing her own letters, too busy singing to me the virtues of a new and coming father to listen to the dreams of children. I got time for one more?
1: One more, yeah.
2: Yeah. So let me tell you what my mom did for a living.
1: Yeah, that's what I really wanted.
2: (laughs) It was your idea, Brando, my mother said for me to become a phone sex operator. (laughs) My mother, grandmother, and I were together watching television in the living room. This was before my mother and I had separate TVs in our own rooms, three televisions for three people who couldn't share. On that day's Donahue, phone sex operators, women who have explicit sexual conversations with men for money, a black silhouette with crescent rolls of vertiginous hair spoke in a digitally graveled voice about the virtues of the job, working from home, lots of tax-free income, power over men. I turned to my mother and said, you could do that. (laughs) How had I, at 10 years old, become my mother's pimp? She left from what she called straight jobs to sex worker because she felt victimized by a series of menial office jobs, the last of which was at a recruiting office, the ironically named Manpower, where she worked as a headhunter. She quit when she was cheated out of a large commission, or to translate into what she'd call white man's words, fired for insubordination. There were a few work options left to a two-year community college graduate, an amateur unemployed paralegal via a mail order diploma course, and a Maranello schools of beauty dropout. Too many fights with her customers. She replied to a tiny box ad soliciting adult phone actresses for a company called Inside Moves in Pacific Palisades. It operated like a taxi service. A client called asking for a woman with particular attributes, tall, voluptuous, redhead, and gave his credit card and a callback number to a dispatcher or screener. She'd then contact one of the operators or girls on call and give her the client's request. The girl then called the client collect at a number he, almost always a he, had provided. When the call was over, the screener would charge the client's credit card based on how many minutes the call had lasted. The girl earned a percentage based on how many minutes were billed. The longer she kept the client on the phone, the more money both she and her company made. My mother gave an alias for her payroll check. Over the more than 10 years that she'd work in the business, she'd cycle through new billing names for a host of reasons marriage, switching companies, remarriage, eluding obsessive clients, re remarriage. She'd accumulated a deck of bad fake IDs to cash checks with no payroll taxes deducted that erased any trace of her Mexican ancestry and spliced together her two fake Indian names, Running Deer Skyhorse, Maria Running Skyhorse, Maria Running Deer, Mia Skyhorse. Mia was a favorite alias. She fanned them out like a deck of cards. I can be anyone I want, she said. It wasn't easy at first. My mother vomited after her first several phone calls. Then she got the hang of it. After several calls, experimenting with various names, ethnicities, and gradations of voice, a clear winner emerged. My mother became Kara Lee, a 23-year-old Irish grad student from Chicago. Straight sex calls, missionary no kink, were simple. Rape, incest, molestation calls, the toughest, though she could do a convincing mimic of an eight-year-old girl. Give me a wowie Pop, she'd say at the kitchen table to make me laugh. Though I knew without understanding she was never this chaste on the phone. Golden and brown shower calls, her explanations were useful. Verbal ammunition for the coming lead to junior high made her laugh. Domination calls were her favorite because they didn't involve graphic sex. On an ever-expanding Rolodex, she'd kept a card for every man she spoke to, noting the date and length of each call, where he lived, when his birthday was, his children's names, and whether he liked to imagine Kara Lee, that is, my mother in black stockings or red lace panties or crotchless. She listened to their insecurities, celebrated their triumphs, commiserated with them over life's disappointments, and acknowledged with handwritten thank you notes their gifts of flowers, chocolate, and classical music sent to her call center. Her calls could last anywhere from 10 minutes, get them off, Then get them off to marathon six-hour therapy sessions. But her therapeutic duties were always second to arousing her clients. My mother scoured pornographic magazines for sexual scenario ideas, but was too embarrassed and too tethered to her telephone to buy them. So she sent my grandmother to the neighborhood stand on the corner of Sunset and Echo Park Avenue. Hola, how are you, Julio? My grandmother was saying. Oh, como estas, abuelita? Uh, everything good? Oh, bien, bien, busy, busy. What you got today, she'd ask. I got the new penthouse form you wanted, Julio said, all business. <laughs> my mother got her best ideas from forms. How about, my grandmother said, putting on her bifocal reading glasses and looking <laughs> at a list, jugs and high society next week, then give me the form... A Reader's Digest and an Ellery Queen. I need my mysteries, my grandmother said. <laughs> oh, don't forget the new Hustler. Thanks for listening, guys.
1: <laughs> Wowza! Have a seat. Uh, it's a wonder you're still alive, my dear. Um, Lots of therapy, don't you? Yeah, really. <laughs> Um, Well, I um, noticed something as you were reading in each of the passages you read, kind of an extraordinary way of dealing with time. And I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you managed to, in each of those scenarios, kind of condense years into kind of a version of a, a deck of cards, um, and it's um, there. There was a moment uh, uh, when you when you even address the reader. You know, thank you, thank you. You know, these endless uh, would be spouses around the country. Were you and I just wanted you to talk about that a little. You did mention to me when I asked you how long it took you to write this book that the. Uh, book started as a kind of uh, apple in your eye or a glimmer in your eye in 1996 and was published in 2014. So um, maybe you could talk about coming up with those techniques for using time or really.
2: This book would be a freshman. If, uh, <laughs> if basically it was sort of going back to uh, when I started thinking about this. This book evolved over a period of, of many, many years. Uh, when I first started writing it, both my mother and my grandmother were still alive. So some of the material in this book is from interviews that I conducted with them when I took a memoir class with Jeffrey Wolf when I was doing my MFA at UC Irvine, and I held on to those materials the entire time. And uh, as I found out more about their lives and talked to more people and found my biological father, when I, fir- when I first sold the book in 2009, I hadn't found him. Mm. And uh, I was stuck for a beginning and I actually you know, found him on, on whitepages.com. There he was. He had been there the entire time hiding in plain sight. So the structure of the book, what the book looked like, completely changed several different times. So it made sense to sort of figure out which areas required that sort of telescopic lens, basically, when you kind of like zoom in and say, "Okay, here's a specific scene that I'm going to focus on, because it's going to give me a certain effect. And when I can pull back, and based upon what little memories I had or what few memories I had, compress all that time. And pick out the one or two most salient details, and that was that was a real challenge. I mean structurally, it, it looks I hope it reads effortlessly on the page, but it took me two solid years to revise this thing. I turned in a draft in two thousand and eleven, and it took me about three full subsequent drafts after that, in a very patient publishing house to give me that time to figure out when those moments occurred, when those sort of telescopic moments needed to happen, and when I could, you know, sort of figure out, like, oh, I can get by with just a few salient details.
1: Well, it, it also, um, it requires really knowing your material. And I'm interested that you mentioned uh, interviewing, because in the part you read about Hollywood High, was Hollywood High, right? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, or the professional school, you know, where you noticed the discrepancies. Uh, Obviously, you did some archival research to kind of check out these stories, right?
2: Yeah, part of that was archival research. Part of that was, you know, what I could find on the web. Uh, There was actually a couple of alumni sites devoted to Hollywood professionals. It was amazing to me that, like, it did have an illustrious group of, of kids that went there and made it all the more amazing that my mom was able to talk my grandmother who was basically a working class woman into sending her there. Uh, She had initially gone to uh, a high school uh, called Belmont Uh, which had a reputation for gangs. And my mother had briefly joined a gang and then wanted to get out of the gang. So in order to avoid going to Belmont, where she was afraid that she was going to get her ass kicked on a daily basis, she told my grandmother, yeah, you got to send me to the school and it's 300 bucks a semester. And so that's where she she ended up. Uh, A number of those sort of fact-checking materials was also provided from, from my grandmother because what I did in the brief time that I had with them... Uh, my mother passed away in the early 99, I think, early 98, and my grandmother in the fall of 99. So within 18 months, the two people that had raised me had passed away. So I was at Irvine from 95 to 97. And so what I did was I spoke with my grandmother separately and then my mother separately and then the two of them together mm-hmm. because I knew <laughs> with the two of them together, I was never going to get the full story. Right. So it was easier for me to kind of like separate them. And it was amazing to me how willing my mom was to talk because she was a natural storyteller and I don't think she knew my goal was to sort of deconstruct her narrative. Right. Um, she might've had a different approach or she might not have talked to me at all, but like those sort of details were really crucial. Uh, and the way that material was used obviously evolved over time as well as I became a better writer.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, we were talking a little we had a very early dinner because he ha- has to go right back to Washington, but we were talking a little about the idea of memoir as testimony uh what did you mean when when you used that phrase
2: um, trying to remember no <laughs> uh i I think what I meant was that um you, you have uh, a story which is so, as you said, so complicated and so multi- multifaceted. You you want to do right, not only for the story's sake, but for the people involved. And uh, for those of you who do actually, if you don't even buy the book, but uh, there's an epigraph up at the front that says, it's a dedication basically, and it says, Mom and Grandma, I wish I had a better memory. Mm. And that's kind of what it's about. That sentence obviously has a dual meaning. I wish I had a better memory as in like, I wish I could remember more. But I also wish I had better memories. I (laughs) wish I had more lovely memories. So the idea of this being sort of a a testimony to um, lives that perhaps could have been lived differently was really important to me. Mm. Uh, I was speaking a a little bit earlier about uh, that uh, review that this book got in the New York Times a review that I still don't know was positive or negative. If any of you can find it, maybe you can help me figure it out because my editor and I, we still like seven months later, it's like, is there anything we can use from it? The one thing that kind of stuck out was the, the reviewer said, this isn't a book about change. This is a book about people who fail to change. And I think that's a really fantastic Thing for a memoir because I feel that the narrative that we are most often sold in memoirs is that there's this story and then there's this journey and everyone le- learns you know uh, sort of you know something about themselves and, and there's a pat ending and it's all fantastic and beautiful but to write that ending for my mother and grandmother who basically die both of them died pretty suddenly would be false.
1: Well, so. there is one character who changes, and that's the narrator, you. And that's you know what I, some, something I was trying to sort of make a point about in the introduction, that uh, people think, oh, you write a memoir. Oh, I'm writing what I remember about X, Y, and Z. Well, actually, it's not. It's a real uh, interaction with one's memory, a memoir. Because because it changes and evolves as you write it. So that the memoir itself is not the memory. It's something else. And it's, it's actually not the stories you tell all the time. I mean, you had those to burn. Mm-hmm. But there's some deeper thing. There, there was some reason that I was really weeping at the end. And it's not that everything was pat. But it's that somehow the writer brings the story to an end... And is still standing, you know, is still speaking to us, and and that's what we need, you know. That's why we need nonfiction for people uh, to put things in some kind of uh, frame so that we can start to understand what we've lived. I think I'm going to open it up because I see all of you out there. And um, does anyone, uh, Dimitri? Thank you. you. during the
0: interview process, do you ever like you ever feel uncomfortable or um, like this like holy shit, this is my mother? Not in a shameful way, but the fact that you had lived through it with her. And I asked because I recently started uncovering how my parents met and I found myself thinking like, Oh, my you know, pops had some good game, and at the same time, like <laughs> it's my father, you know, dating my mother.
2: Um, not really, because my mother was a ruthless liar, so I knew that at least half of what I was getting was false. I also didn 't really i like the aesthetic of this book really developed after both my mom and my grandmother passed away, so it was many years kind of removed I think initially. You know, when I first started talking to him, I was something like 23, 24 years old. And, you know, it was more like I have an assignment for this class, I gotta get 20 pages done in like a week start talking. And of course, my mom was brilliant with that. She's like, oh, yeah, just, you know, go, t- type, you know, I'll, I'll fill out the pages for you. It's like, how much you need is basically like, okay, I can give you another story, I can give you another story. So it was never really a question of like, oh, you know, I'm going to start confronting these issues later on. That only became an issue as like the book started evolving and, and progressed. Um, I'm not really sure how it would have happened if my mom hadn't died uh, as suddenly as she did, uh, or my grandmother. I think my grandmother probably would have been more, um, more comfortable with the process of this evolving and getting the record down somewhere. You know, I often tell people, when people ask me, oh, if your mom was alive today, how would she respond to the book? And I was like, well you know, she'd leave two Amazon reviews. One would be a five-star, one would be a one-star. And the five-star would be like, this is the best thing anyone's ever written. You know, you got to go out and buy my son's book. And the other was like, yeah, this is full of lies. You know, like, you got to contact me for the real story because, like, he left out a whole bunch of other stuff that's really good and and so on and so forth. So it was, again, that sort of duality, um, which I think is sort of why duality as a concept is, is interesting to me.
1: yeah. Yeah, Tushar. I was like really interested. Like, were talking about
2: um, condensing time and and memory? And you were talking about some salient features or points that you consider. Uh, So, could you like talk a bit more about that? Like, what would those salient features be? Would they be like uh, depending on the emotional portion? Or will it be about humor? Will it be about nostalgia? And uh, how subjective do you think that decision is? Like, uh, you know, when you are trying to condense time and memory. I think um, one of the things I've sort of learned about nonfiction in particular, because I basically had to learn how to do it writing this book, because I had written fiction up to this point. And, you know, don't be fooled. Writing nonfiction is extremely complicated and extremely difficult. It's far more difficult than fiction. Uh, And I'm never going to do it again. No, I'm I'm (laughs) kind of kidding. But uh, in terms of, you know, that engagement, you know, my early drafts of this memoir were really flat because I kept getting pushed off the page by more interesting characters. Mm-hmm. And my, my editor kept telling me, nobody will be interested in however crazy your mom is if they don't know who you are. That's right. So that was sort of the framework. It's like, okay, what are the moments that I can pick that best highlight these memories that I have. Then it came to figuring out what I call the specific inner voice. And that inner voice, as you see, like every so often, like, you know, when I ask those questions what was I doing? What was I thinking? How was I feeling? How was I processing? If I had places where I could de- definitively answer that with a specific inner voice, that was a great place for a scene. And that meant I could slow time down and really focus on a specific moment because I'd had time to process it that sort of uh, collage of moments where basically I just remembered the moment but not what I was thinking and feeling about Rick or you know, Larry or all those other people. It made it easier to assemble it into sort of like this place where time got collapsed because I didn't have that inner voice for those specific moments. I had an inner voice thought about the collection of moments. And so in that way, I could sort of condense. Because again, those trips, that was probably about maybe a year-long period. And each one of those trips was like two or three days, and my mom would take me out of school, and blah, 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 blah. But that goes back into like the showing versus telling. It's like, I don't need to tell you. And then my mom took me out of school for the 13th time, because all of those little details, those one-sentence details, the implication is already there. So I think having that specific inner voice is really crucial in determining where to slow things down and where to speed things up.
1: Yeah, and um, it's almost as if, uh, I mean, I remember having to write a description of my grandmother's amazing living room, you know, and it was like, okay, like, how am I going to make people understand that there is such a thing as an absolutely beyond amazing living room. And I realized I had to dramatize it. So that's what you're saying. You kind of took all these details and you made them into some kind of poemish prose entity that itself was dramatic. And that was the voice of the narrator well, it's, it's, doing the dramatizing. Yeah, I mean,
2: it's, it's like, I mean, I, I hate these metaphors whenever people talk, writers talk about writing because they can get very sort of like, oh, it's, it's like a road trip and blah, blah, blah. But it really is like a road trip in that, uh, you know, you figure out the places that, obviously, in your mind, you have those key scenes, the big landmarks, and you know you're going to stop there and you know you're going to spend a lot of time there and you know you're going to have a lot to say. But in the process of putting this narrative together, there were all these sort of little like side routes that I just realized in the moment, oh, I have more to say about this. I can spend an additional few pages to stop here, take a look around, and put more of the page, more of my thoughts on the page. And conversely, there were places that I thought were going to be big that I didn't really have a lot to say on, and just sort of drove on by.
1: you mentioned that you had this draft and you turned it into your publisher, and they gave you two years to revise it. I'm curious. That's to- for pros,
2: by the way. That's 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 a professional gig. Don't don't no, not for amateurs, by the way. <laughs> Most publishers will cancel your contract, so do, do not take this as a guidebook for what to do. Uh, yeah, so- um,
1: but I'm interested, uh, just from a writing point of view, uh, in how important it was for you to have a complete draft even though it it wasn't where you wanted to be in terms of getting to where you wanted to be because it's something we talk about uh, you know a lot when uh, our students all of you are doing your thesis you know and i say get the get a draft of something yeah, I mean it's it's sort of
2: like that that scene in Amadeus where like uh, somebody is waiting for like Mozart's you know symphony or something, and he's like it's oh it's all in my head it's already written he's like it does no one any good if it's in your head I need it on paper right the same sort of theory applies you probably got the story in your head. But it has to be on paper because that's when you can really decide, again, like, oh, I need more here. I need less here. You can really get a sense of the shape and the architecture and everything else. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need every single thing in your first draft. It just means you need a draft. You need something to look at. You need something to mark up. And then once you have that, and hopefully after you've sat on it for a while, not 18 years, but I mean, hopefully, you know, longer than a few weeks, then you can get a sense of, okay, here's where, you know, I need to expand this, I need to take away from here, because that's really the only way I know how to do it. It's right. the only way I know how to do it. So. I um, oh. I'm interested in, in like, your interview process, right? Which apparently is interesting, so, like, if they're and and bringing together, we're not going to get information out And I wonder what you think, in a way that sort of, like, intergenerational limitation of one person afraid to tell the truth from another
0: person because of the implications of what it means. How do you think that kind of articulates sort of the social and personal character of being in
2: America? Sure. I mean, I I would love to say that there was a a deep sort of intellectual thing going on with them. But I, I think that it was more like they just wanted to tell the better story and so they kept like so they kept one upping themselves but i think from a generational standpoint i think that there's a lot of humor in this book and a lot of humor is basically used as deflection and i know that both my mother and grandmother excelled at sort of deflecting what they really wanted to talk about so in the sort of dialogue that they had together what worked best was when they both had a story whose sort of like contours and shape they could roughly agree on. Because then it was like seeing an improv team kind of working together and like adding details and any sort of like sense of like age or distance kind of collapsed. But uh, am, I, am I answering your question or am I just? Yeah. Name, yeah. Like, impro- improvising the details and like filling things out with deflecting. Yeah. And I wonder Um, no, no, God, no, I, I'm, I'm not that, that, I'm not that smart. No, I, I I would, I I would, I would, I would would love, I would love to, to, you know, uh, have that sort of conscientious, um, implication of like sort of the the American storytelling aesthetic. If it did, it happened in a really subconscious and subtle way. I mean, there are briefly like one or two lines where I talk about how, you know, Hollywood in Los Angeles is a place where people traditionally go to reinvent themselves. And so there is this aesthetic that because I am named after a movie star and because my mother pretended that she knew Marlon Brando, For real, that was her thing, that basically I was named after Marlon Brando because he was my godfather. Now, again, he was in a movie called The Godfather, so like, literally it was like, which sort of layer do you believe? So in that way, yes, there was probably a subconscious level of like, okay, my mom literally would do whatever it took to sort of reinvent herself and claim some sort of like, you know some sort of stardom some sort of celebrity for herself um and that in a way i think is sort of like a very subtle indictment on you know the way in which we live as americans everyone wants to be famous everyone wants to have their own sort of like narrative kind of blown up uh, into something uh wonderful and expansive but as far as anything consciously no no it's i feel like the best work and i don't know maybe honor can add more to this than than i can always comes from like a really unconscious place. I think I was more concerned, that my primary aesthetic in writing this was, why did this happen? Why did, why did I have such a damaged childhood? Why did bad things keep happening to us? And it was only when I could kind of put all of the arts together, all the sort of pieces together that I realized, oh, bad things kept happening because people kept making very poor decisions. And I know that sounds really self evident, but it wasn't something I don't think I was even able to realize until I had everything in front of me.
1: Yeah. Yes? I really, um, I really love your voice, your
2: narrative voice that's so connected. And oh, thank so, you very much. Emotionally uh, to uh, your, uh, the way you put across your story. Uh, but my question
1: is, and you spent two years. Up with, I, I'm assuming you had an editor that absolutely loved your
2: story. I also want to mention, I think there's... She says thing. she did, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's a great irony that you're doing a story about uh, your mother
1: who was uh, almost a pathological in her lying uh, but it's also a greater story about Hollywood syndrome, I think. But uh, could you address how you dealt with your uh, editor because I believe uh, there's a a big story
2: there, if you spent two years moving towards that voice, I'm assuming that's what... Yeah, yeah, I I mean, that's a really wonderful question. Uh, It's not something I get the chance to talk a lot about, in particular because I worked as an editor in publishing for ten years, and I worked on nonfiction. so you would think I would know how to do this, and I didn't, and it took me, you know, I would probably say at least the first six months to really kind of decipher what my editor was going after. So, basically what I did, because I was so obsessed with getting the truth down on paper, was that there was nothing in scene. There were no scenes in this book. It was literally, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it was certainly a truthful recitation. And I'm sure you guys have had this conversation as well. It's like, what can I set in scene? How much can I remember? and it was just flat, it was boring, there was no sort of drive, it was just sort of like, it was like a graduate thesis, basically. Not 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 like, not like, not like, not like you guys. Not I mean, like ours. I mean, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, like Lick Crit or something like that, you know, not, not, not good stuff like you guys. So I forgot where I was for a second. So, um, so really it took like a first, the first few months to kind of deconstruct and, you know, uh, we went back and forth and, and, you know, I kept reading more books. That's basically how I cracked the nut because my editor was really, really exceptional at pointing at the places that things did not work. But in terms of offering solutions, you know, she was like, well, it's your book. You got to figure it out. You got to offer the solution. Thanks so a I tr- lot. Yeah, well, I, I love her. I love her. But, yeah. you know, in terms of, like, giving me the solution... Yeah, I mean, and but that was like literally over time. It was literally just drilled again and again and again. And, uh, you know, literally the, the, the opening of this book, for example, which basically is a four-page summary of the entire story, and it sort of sets us off on our quest. And it's only four pages, and I think it's a wonderful opening. I must have rewritten that opening something close to 60 times. And I mean like literally 60 fully different, different drafts, fully revi- like the whole different thing over and over and over again until, I mean, I was revising the opening, I think, up until we were in proofs, up until basically like where it was basically ready to go to press and just making those last minute changes. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that if I'd had more time, I would have kept revising.
1: Well, it's a process of coming to know what your story is. I mean, I think that's part of it, you know, and it's a very intelligent editor who really understands that. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know? No, she's
2: she really phenomenal, and she would worked with a lot of other big nonfiction writers as well. So having that sort of guidance was just really, really key.
1: Well, and trust. Yeah. You know, she believed that you were going to do it. I mean, that's that's the other thing. And I think that, I mean, I hope that part of what people get from being in a an MFA program, specifically this Fabulous MFA program is to somehow internalize some of that, you know, somehow get that from your professors and your thesis advisors so you can internalize some of that uh, confidence. Marianne, are you raising your hand? Oh, raise your hand.
2: those narratives that you kind of were um, purposely going, you know, sitting down with them, but also sort of the narrative that you were fed from a s- small child about sort of who you were. How, do you feel like at the end that you were able to sort of comb through and tease out what was real and what wasn't? Or real and not, or did you just sort of embrace this sort of creative <laughs> aspect of like, yeah to- sure no no i I, I think I, that's an excellent question as well and I, I think that I had to rely on two things. I had to rely on my own gut, my own experiences, because again, obviously, as a small kid, it's like, you know, some yeah. stuff you remember, some stuff you're a little less hazy on. And so, one of the key characters in this book is named Frank, and he started dating my mom around four or five when I was four or five years old, and I'm still in touch with him. He's basically the guy I consider my father. And so, a number of the scenes, by, by basically, by the time he appears on the scene, like his memory's pretty sound. And so, I've run things by him. I was like, did that happen? He's like, oh, yeah, that. Pretty much happened exactly the way you wrote it. He's like, yeah, I I couldn't forget that. And so that was, it was a nice thing to have that sort of backup. But my working my way in, it was important. Like we meet my mother. The first time we meet my mother, she's telling a story about how she was almost abducted by Ted Bundy. And basically at the last minute, she was saved by a group of hell's angels and, and she would tell the story the whole time. And basically the conceit of the story, the punchline of the story is like, well, you know, if Ted Bundy had killed me, I would have never like met your father and give, given birth to you. So you're, you're here because Ted Bundy was unsuccessful in raping and murdering me. That was sort of the conceit of the story. So like how do you, and to me that felt like the perfect way to introduce my mom because it's such an over-the-top story. So overblown, but she believed it. I mean that's the thing. I I don't feel that like my mom was like being intentionally malicious. Like she believed these stories because she had been telling them for so many years. So my goal was to basically put these stories down and to offer enough counter punches or counterweights so that by the time you get through the narrative, it's like, okay, yeah, you know this is nonsense, you know this isn't true, but you can come to that determination by yourself without me kind of having to put my thumb on the scale and say, here's another lie she told, here's another lie she told. There's no judgment here. And it's the thing I was talking about earlier about empathy is that I am enormously empathetic to where my mother's storytelling bug came from. And I think that's really key. But that said, you know, I had to tell the truth as I remembered it, as accurately as I could. This is not about being creative in a James Fry, oh, I was in prison for three months kind of way. You know, like, this is, this is basically the truth as best as I can remember it and recount it. Um, if you're not doing that, then what you're doing is fiction. It's not memoir.
1: Perfect way to end. Um, and let's give...